from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, friends and fellow car lovers. I'm Robert Ross. We had some great guests over the course of our first season. We're currently busy lining up more incredible conversations for season two. But in the meantime, I wanted to share some highlights. On our first episode of Cars That Matter, Bill Curtis and I sat down with David Gooding from Gooding & Company. While our conversation included David's personal history and love for automobiles to where David thought the future of cars was heading... It was this question from Bill Curtis that piqued my interest. What should be my strategy when I walk into an auction if I see a couple of cars that I know I want to bid on? First off, we, you know, I can understand why it would be intimidating to people, but we don't want it to be. And we always encourage people to ask a lot of questions uh, at the time of the viewing. If you're, if you're showing up ahead of time of the auction, come see a specialist. Which you always should, right? You absolutely always should. Uh, if you can't get there, send a trusted friend or advisor to, to come look at the cars. But come ask us whatever questions you have. And try the car on for size. You know, it may look beautiful and fantastic, but then you go to sit in it, and the steering wheel's in your gut, and you can't slide in, you, or, you, you know, you can't reach the pedals. Or 55 I mean, T-Bird, anybody? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you can't figure out how to, how to shift it. <laughs> right, right. Or the door, you know, or the windshield's in your eye, eye line, and there might be things that really don't work for you. Hopefully, you're going to use the car. You're going to drive it. Some people don't, but, you know, if, if, it's, if it's about driving it, you know, sit in it. Get a feel for it, hear it run. Even if you're very seriously interested in it, we can organize a test drive in advance. But also ask a lot of questions. Ask to see the files. And we have a whole archive section where we have every every car's history file put together from the beginning to uh, contemporary time. So I encourage people to go through the archives, look at the file, look at the restoration receipts, look at the, you know, all the old photos and everything, and and that's uh, super important. And then ask us about the car and, and what we can impart to you. Okay, so I've yeah, I've, I've come there and I've, I've I've found a car and yep. and this is just yep. something that belongs in my collection and right. Okay, so I, I I certainly don't want to let anybody know that I'm interested in the car, right? right. I just and I and I. Uh, well, as it, as it proceeds, do, do I bid early? Do I? Well, no. Sometimes people that act very territorial can can kind of intimidate other people out of it. So mm-hmm. there's no one thing, but yeah, I mean, it, generally you're going to want to hold your cards close to your vest. But I've seen other so you people go to the guy sitting it, next to you and say, "You can leave now because I'm buying this car." Well, I've right? seen I've seen uh, big heavy hitters come in and go. You know, these are these are guys that are known to be wealthy, they'll come in and they'll say, I'm buying that car. And other people go, well, I've just, I never bid because so-and-so said they were buying the car. And then turns out so-and-so doesn't really, you know, go that strong on the car. So you, you can over intimidate people. But generally, if you're going to, if you're going to play your cards close to your vest, watch the room, watch the room carefully, see who's, who's bidding. You may know them, you may not know them. But I would go into the bidding process with a number in mind, and then the way I think is I usually have. No, a, no I'm a remembering plus. you're the auctioneer. No, so. I know, I know. But I've been I've been in the audience, and I'm I'm ve- I'm a passionate collector, and I get I get caught up. Uh, red mist, ask, man. Y- red you know, mist. Yeah, you get you get the red mist definitely. So you have your budget. I'm not going to pay more than a hundred thousand dollars. But then you, you know, in the moment you can then reach point one million. <laughs> Should I bid again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you're you're a little less uh, disciplined than myself, but yeah. No, I. You know, you can get uh, you you come up with that budget, but then be able to be a little flexible because you can you can also read the people in the room, and sometimes you tend to go plus one or two, and oftentimes you can read the the other bidders, and you can see that they're they're done or they're not. Of course, uh, and they're always the wild cards, that German on the phone and uh, yeah. the guy from England on the phone. Right. And, uh, they really are can... on the phone, right, David? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they really are they... on the phone. Sometimes, what some people don't realize is sometimes there are people in the room on that the are phone. on the phone. So there are bidders in the audience talking to our phone bidder 
on, on the telephone bank. No, I so did not watching. realize that. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. So uh, they like to be uh, somewhat trust, anonymous. They want, to be, they want to trust but verify and see what's going yeah. on in the room and read the room. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, do, you want, do you want to be in, Robert, do you want to be in one of the VIP seats in the front or like <laughs> sit in the back of the room and watch the crowd? You want yeah. to be the guy with the janitorial cart, but you're actually the guy bidding. Bidding on the, in yeah. the room, yeah. We have all kinds of different bidders and whatnot. But I, you know, I would, I would go with that car, follow it, obviously, and then watch the other bidders. And you can generally detect weakness and see whether or not they're going to fall back or not. And then, you know, you have to do some soul searching. And I would ask yourself, how special and rare is that car? Does it, is it exactly what you want? Is it everything that you'd hoped for? If so, really stretch extra. If it's not, then go your, go, you know, go with what you budgeted and then drop out. But to the point of what you were saying before about, about, you know, where to start and stop. One thing that I, that I don't think people um, take into account enough or ask themselves is, okay, if I'm going to pass on this car, how long, when is the next one Mm going to come up? Like, okay, they, sure, they're plentiful, but when is the next one in that color going to come up that's going to be available in that condition? It may be very soon. It may be five years. Okay, so you're 60 years old and you're going, okay, well, I've got, you know, there's five summers that are five years gone that I'm going to have to wait. I'm a great believer in Look, life is short. If it's there and you can do it, go for it. There's nothing sadder than an old car collector with an empty garage space saying, <laughs> yeah. coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. And a lot of them have money and a lot of them have re- regrets. And, uh, you know, I sit there and say, you know, you, you just should have. You, you should have. What, what is that, that memory? You could have taken... That car to, you know, on the Millamilia with your son. I mean, what a, what a great memory that would be. On the second episode, I was joined by Pete Stout and Alex Polevsky, creators of the Triple Zero magazine, which covers all things Porsche. They ended up sharing an interesting story about a race car that never raced. For issue seven, we did a story on the LMP2000, which is a Porsche that not that many people know about. And it was meant to be the follow-up race car to the 911 GT1 98, the one Le Mans 98, right. famously on the 50th anniversary. That's right. And so Norbert Singer and co. had planned this V10 Spider, this world endurance racing Spider, this Le Mans car, and it would have been able to race elsewhere as well. And it was a, an outgrowth of the Footworks V12 program, which didn't do that well. Mm-hmm. And they kind of figured out, Metzger and, and his engine crew kind of figured out that this engine wants to be a V10, not a V12. And so they readdressed that engine, and it became a V10, and they had plans to put the Spider into racing. And they looked at a V12 coupe as well. They looked at putting the 12 into a coupe, but none of this was known to me, or to anyone, really. All that we all knew was that they had a car. It was rumored they had this LMP2000. The project was happening under complete secrecy, and then they canceled it to build the Cayenne instead. Uh, first things first. And so Vendelin Vedeking was vilified by all the enthusiasts out there, and there were some T-shirts made with profanities. The late Bruce Anderson had a T-shirt made up that said, F. Lamont, we're building trucks. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. And so a lot of the enthusiasts were up in arms. Of how can you not go racing after winning Lamont with the GT198? Racing is the core of Porsche. And it is at some level. But Ferry Porsche was always into streetcars. Ferry Porsche had, at multiple points, chosen the, the road cars as more important than the race cars. The antithesis of Ferrari, for instance. Exactly. Correct. Much like Lamborghini. Correct. No it, interest in racing. Well, and remember the Formula One program. Ferry uh, Porsche chose, nope, we're not going further with this. Remember Ferdinand Piech wanting 13-inch wheels on the 906. And Ferry Porsche saying, sorry, nephew, you've got to use up all those 15-inch wheels first. <laughs> so Porsche had, at various points, even though Vita King was vilified for this, Porsche had, at various points, made these sorts of decisions. And the LMP2000 was caught on film with what must have been a 600 or 1200 millimeter lens. One time. One day. It's like a flying saucer. Exactly. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. And I don't know this to be true, but I believe that it was leaked to somebody that the car was going to run once. Now I believe that. I didn't know that then. And two or three photos leaked out into the world of this car in very low resolution. And you can Google them. They'll come right up if you Google Porsche LMP 2000. The sort of grainy, long-distance images will come up. Kind of like the JFK Maryland photos I have. (laughs) Very much so. Very much so. So this car was shot from a very far distance away from the Weissach test track. 
They got one front three-quarter, one rear three-quarter, and one side profile not complete. And then that was it. The car disappeared. There was never another photo of it. And Porsche did not acknowledge that this car existed, which is very important to mention. For a long, long time, they would not acknowledge it. So the car just into thin air. And what really happened was it was put into this underground vault they used to have, which you may have seen at some point, Robert, in your travels. But they <laughs> never, never the one with that particular mummy in it. <laughs> okay, so they, they the car disappeared under in, into a vault and under covers. And Vita King was apparently furious that the three photos had gotten out, and they dispatched a crew to figure out where the photos had come from and to make sure that no photos would ever come from that space again. As the years went on. I was sitting at my desk one day, and the Porsche calendar showed up. Porsche does an annual calendar with a different theme every year, and just to clarify. And in some years, they do multiple themes. So they'll do two or three calendars in that year. And, and one of the calendars I happened to get one a year had a photo of the LMP2000 in the calendar. And I immediately Not a it. grainy long lens photo, mind you. A real professional photo. In the underground storage vault. And I, to this day, I'd like to confirm this, but to this day, it's my belief that they turned a couple of photographers loose in there. The idea of this calendar was sort of these cars that didn't make it out or these hidden treasures. Was this a mea culpa? I don't think it was any of that. I'd like to confirm it. I'm not, I'm not sure about this, but my sense is that a couple of photographers who were young were turned loose in that vault to photograph cars. And then an art director who didn't know what they're looking at let it out there. But I immediately picked up the phone and called Carrie Morris, who's our editor at Random and perhaps the most intelligent person I've come across on Porsche Motorsport and race cars in the 20 years I've been in this game. And so I called Carrie and I said, you won't believe what I'm looking at. And he said, what? I said, I'm looking at the LMP2000 in, in high resolution photos. And he said, where? I said, it's in, in the Porsche calendar. He said, send me some photos. So I sent him some snapshots on the phone and he couldn't believe it either. And so I really wanted to get a good story to go with the car. And I had spoken to McNish about it when I brought the calendar for his signature. And he wrote on my calendar, he wrote the one that got away and then signed his name. And I had actually talked to Wallach before he died about the car. And he just got this big smile. Wow. And all reports were that the car was really, really good. But it only tested once. Vita King effectively had already made the decision to kill the program. And Norbert Singer said, can we run it? Can we at least test it? And he said, you can test it once and then it goes away. And so the car disappeared. And 20 years later... We finally got the story. Randy Leffingwell told the story expertly. And we asked Porsche, would they bring the car back to Weissach for a photo shoot? Which is where it had been snapped that fateful day by Isn't the spy right? photographer. Yeah. And what we didn't know was that was the first time the car had been back to Weissach for 20 years. And some of the people we were working at with Porsche didn't understand. They said, well, why can't you photograph it just here at the museum? Or why can't you photograph it over here in this parking lot? I said, no, no, it's important that we shoot it in Weissach. It's important that we get it there. And that took some work to get them over that hump. But they eventually transported the car over to Weissach. And then we got an interesting email from the people involved. And they said, you know, everyone at Weissach was very interested in this car. They were wondering, what is this car? And where did it come from? And why is it here? And could we maybe use some of these photos? And so this is really the fun of this. Because we ended up doing, what, a probably a 50 or 70-page article on that car. And Porsche broke loose the archival documents, and we were able to share those archival documents, the wind tunnel tests, the... The parts list. We did the parts list. They had a complete parts list for this car, almost complete parts list. That's amazing. Truly amazing. And who but triple zero could have done that? So we published the parts list for the LMP2000, took several pages. We also published the test notes. We published the internal notes of how many front ends they would need to go to Le Mans with, how many of each parts. And you get an eye into, and this is what triple zero is really about, you get an eye into how Porsche thinks. One of the things that I'm really interested in and want to share through this podcast is the world of car design. That's why it was such a joy that Bill and I got to sit down with husband and wife team Ian Cameron and Verena Cluse, formerly of Rolls-Royce and BMW Design Works, respectively. They shared not only the unique facets that made their time designing automobiles so fascinating, but they also took the time to peek into the future and what they thought design would look like in the next few decades. You kind of redefined the bespoke moment that your customers could have because you had a whole laundry list of the different choices that your customer could make and really feel like they had a hand in the design of the car. Which was absolutely true. I think we've always said that virtually no Rolls-Royce is identical to the other one. And the bespoke customer, the bespoke market has just blossomed since then. Uh, at the time, around 2003, it was still fairly rare. In the meantime, I would say almost every car that comes off the production line in, in Goodwood is a bespoke. And this is exactly what the clientele wants. They want to have their car. 
It's certainly an opportunity lost not to take advantage of the fact that you can actually create a car to your specification. The whole notion of going in and buying a car off the rack, like buying a shirt off the rack, is, is almost anathema, it would seem to me, if you're in a position to uh, buy a car like a Rolls-Royce. Yes, and interestingly, talking about a clothes rack, we introduced the idea of a dress code to identify each model, the Phantom Limousine being the first one. Do tell, explain this a little more. Um, if you're trying to separate just with numbers and performance and weights, etc., that doesn't always make a lot of sense to the people you're trying to get money from to back the project, even the board. If you start presenting it as a dress code and you show people in a smoking, in a sports jacket, in a business suit, you start to understand where the product's aimed at. And in terms of Rolls-Royce, this was extremely important. The first time it's been used within a design project in BMW was a process that we call phase zero. And phase zero was something that had been in use in design works in dealing with non-automotive customers, how they define and start to create a context, a basis for a project. It's something that's used more widely, I think, in architecture. Phase zero is a um, process step, basically, before you dive deep into the project to develop for the team and the, all the stakeholders a deeper understanding what the project actually, what kind of challenges the project has. Not the project by itself, but what challenges are existing for the future service you want to design or for the future car you want to design or for the future consumer product. Depending. And this gave you a better sense of what you should design going forward? Bas yeah, basically yeah. it's simply spoken, you have to figure out what kind of questions we need to ask to find the right answers to come up with a better enhanced consumer experience at the end. Dean, you must have had to functionally inspire the people that you had on your team to accomplish the kind of designs that you came out with in 2003. Now, certainly a big stepping stone in achieving that was having people from very different backgrounds. We could draw people from Design Works, the Rover Studios, Land Rover Studios in the UK, bring them together for this experience in the London studio and simply look under every stone possible that had something to do with Rolls-Royce and its past, as much to understand mistakes as successes. Well, w without getting you to do a forensic analysis on your Phantom design, can you briefly explain how it does indeed relate to or creatively pay respects to uh, its predecessors in terms of proportions and and uh, the gestalt of the of the form? The gestalt, we don't use that term in Rolls-Royce, but... Uh, <laughs> I should par pardon me yeah. there. No, no, you... I, I, I will relate this. Let, let's say that the light first shone on our marble heads when we paid a visit to the world-renowned Rolls-Royce restorers P&A Wood down in the south of England. They had recently had a Spitfire as an aircraft. Not the little Triumph. Not the little Triumph, because they, they rebuilt Spitfire engines as well, and they had one yeah. in their showroom. They had a Spitfire in their showroom. It's the size of a king-size bed. It is, and we very cautiously um, contacted them, asked them if we could come down and have a visit, see what they did. That is quite literally where I think the, the learning curve came on course and we started to understand what Rolls-Royce was about. And it was, it was just tremendous. I'm curious as to how you see the market going forward design-wise for the automobile with all the noise about Uber and Lyft. Both of you, what does the next 20 years look like for the luxury automobile? I like that question. There was someone who said an engineer didn't know what was happening in the next five years let alone what's happening the next 10, 15. But your job is to know what's going to happen. Well, I don't know what's going to happen. For sure, the planet's got a problem, and there's certain things we need to address, but we need to address them honestly. I have a great issue with the whole electric selling point that this is green. It is not green. This is a lie. The fact is, at the moment, the technology we have and the means and materials that we have, we could not all be driving electric vehicles. We could not supply and make the batteries. We could not supply and make the vehicles, etc. So the materials are simply not there, the charging is not there, and the source of electricity is neither there nor clean. Let me push back for just a minute. We have another podcast called Politics, Meet Me in the Middle. Oh, yes. And we had one of our local state senators on, and he talked about how in California, we're down to 14% of our power structure is fossil fuels. And the majority of it now is wind, solar, and water. And at the same time, what prevents someone who has an electric car from putting solar panels on their roof to charge it? 
but California is not the world. I mean, if we take a global view. How do you maintain an electric vehicle fleet in Berlin? Yes. You park uh, on the street in the snow sideways. You can't even, nobody has a garage. You know, just, just as an example, at the moment, Europe is sweltering under unusually California-like weather. And standard offices, studios, whatever you want to think of in Germany, they are not allowed to have air conditioning. Kill me now. Because it would would collapse. The the, uh, infrastructure, the power grid is not there. Is not there. Sure, we have to achieve change, and this can't come quickly enough, but it needs to be done on an honest basis. So what are some of the things, hydrogen? Uh, what, what, uh... That's definitely a, a, an alternative, but it's also complicated. It's, it's extremely difficult to store, etc., etc., but this should be driven by technology and not by politics. And mm-hmm. in this day and Good age, luck. it is, yes. But there's a few things that feel stranger than showing up at a restaurant with a table for eight going out into the valet at the end of the evening and realizing the carbon footprint that you have exhausted, having your friends come to dinner is eight cars making essentially the same trip. We've got to get a little better in our planning. The whole idea of Uber and the Lyft is, are we moving forward as passengers in transportation or are we drivers? Ownership is still a big part of the equation for me. The pleasure of owning something and the experience of wanting to, being involved in it, being connected with it is quite different to being a passive passenger in a taxi or a product which belongs to someone else. These are all huge questions in terms of how we see mobility, ownership, usage in the future. And this is true what you're saying about the carbon footprint, no doubt. But the other side of that coin is the aspect of convenience. Convenience is one of the biggest drivers of what we do, it's also really a poison chalice because we become more and more passive. For me, the whole Uber experience and just depending on other people to move us around or pods which come and pick us up, we come to do less and less and less. All we do is use our thumbs at the end of the day. It's definitely proven the lesser we do with our three-dimensional capacities. When you drive, you have to look ahead. You have to look in the distance. You have to look around you and you have to maneuver your car. And if you give up on this, you give up a lot of capabilities of yourself, of your your brain. What you're both saying, though, is that you, going forward, hope to continue to design for the front seat more than the back. I would like to. I enjoy driving. I love driving. I love motor cars. But whether they're motor cars which have electrical or internal combustion propulsion? I don't know. This is a different question. The other issue, which is sure, is as a new mode of transport, electrification or electric vehicle must be different. It must appeal in a different way. That will make me or the customer change from one thing that he's used to to something that is new. It's just the appeal of that product. At the moment, they all mimic a product that we're familiar with. If you look at a Tesla, I can't tell that that must be an electric vehicle. To Ian's point and Verena's about the whole notion of driving, this program is called Cars That Matter. And cars that matter are cars that you get behind the wheel of and that you actually have a relationship with. Absolutely. And uh, exactly. whether it's a Jag E-Type or a brand new electric Porsche Taycan, I suspect there's an opportunity to have a relationship with both. But you're uh, right, Ian, until electric cars become interesting, I'm yes. not interested. There is- well, there's a kind of a feeling when you're behind the wheel of a well-designed car that's pretty much indescribable. I think we just have a problem in that there's a whole generation of people who haven't even experienced that. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, it's pretty much clear. We all hate to be behind the steering wheel and sitting in a a stow or a traffic jam and just waiting. What was that first? The stow? Stow. It's a German German You have traffic in in, uh, Berlin? We have a lot of traffic traffic in Berlin, (laughs) Munich, and you sit... For hours in a stow. And then, of course, you would love to beam yourself away. And that is somehow this beaming away, the idea of autonomous driving. But what else would you do there? Maybe you would read a book? I doubt it. You'd You'd probably shop and buy some useless stupid stuff you don't need. You would be bombarded bombarded by advertisement. You would listen (laughs) to Cars That Matter or other similar podcasts on a well-designed stereo. Fair enough, but (laughs) nothing else. So as you go forward, these changes in society, are you designing for them? Yeah. 
You have to. <laughs> so when we say designing, I can speak for myself and I hope that all my fellow colleagues are doing the same. My ambition was always to do something what makes a life and world better for future consumers. There you and go. When, when I say so, it doesn't mean not always to produce more products, to produce more variety, make the world better. That means to anticipate What will be better by then, five years, ten years ahead? The cell companies, Verizon and AT&T, are all touting about the 5G coming and how that is going to change all of the products that we use, whether in an automobile. The change our brainwaves. I don't change know. Change yeah. uh, That will probably Because, be yeah. controlled pretty soon. Tell me, how is that communication style affecting your designs? The fact that every product that you make going forward is going to be able to talk to every other product you make going forward. One of the realities of what you're talking about is the complexity. And this is why you'll suddenly say, not suddenly, it's been going on for some time, Certainly in the automotive world, people, manufacturers, realize they can't do it themselves. First of all, there's a huge mismatch between the development cycle of a vehicle and the development cycle of electronic products. They end every week, would seem to be, whereas you need to shut things down. This is what we will produce and deliver in three years' time. This doesn't work. But I have a huge problem with the complexity that is being forced on us for what reason? Again, to make us more passive, to make us sit down and shop more. What for? Yeah, but therefore it's the role of designers to sort for the future consumer, sort through this mess, this complexity and bundle meaningful experiences out of it. Because if every product talks to every product, even we consumer, we will not notice it. I have very often these experiences by myself and that then I will use it also for my work where I get stupid messages on my laptop or funny advertisement. I have yet just used Instagram, then I open Facebook or I have ordered a certain type of sunglasses and then... I get bombardments of the same sunglasses or similar sunglasses. So luckily, the system is still stupid enough, uh, stupid enough <laughs> Where it needs not to it, completely yeah. understand what is my mindset. But once again, a designer always must be the mediator, the middleman between all the different interests of the stakeholders to sort this mess, what's going on in or a variety of different interests and create something what is meaningful for future consumers. The other thing has to be said, designers are not an island in a storm. They're always part of a system. Unless the system backs them up, unless there's understanding from leadership of how and what the product should be and what it's trying to achieve in a long term, not in a short term, you're just wasting time. Design is being used as a facilitator, and it's much more than that. It's just to just realize what this is. And when that is defined and driven by politics, who are here today and gone tomorrow, that's an extremely slippery slope. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. In episode five, I was joined by Andreas Therner, vice president design from Karma Automotive, who had worked under Ian Cameron, no less. Talking to Andreas about finding his career through art and the details of his own approach to automotive design was a real joy. You know, let's go back before we kind of jump into Karma and talk about for a minute some of the things that really inspire you. You know, I, I had a chance to look at you with your portfolio And obviously the drawing is remarkable. A lot of car designers, quote-unquote, obviously have some great executive skills with the pencil or the pen. But drawing is obviously something that's really important to you. And you have an art background. And maybe you want to talk about that for a moment. I think that very few designers have a fine art background. And to me, it seems like a rare connection that informs design in a way that, that would not otherwise be so informed. Yeah, sketching design means a lot for me. Even before I could probably articulate in any other way, I was sketching all the time. My parents have four boys and they tell even when I was two, three years old, I was sketching all the time. Two older brothers later when I was in kindergarten and then in school, I was 
asked by my older brothers to sketch their homeworks <laughs> or when they were when they were in like in high school or, or even university I did some art projects for them and they That's paid me fantastic. so that was the way where I gained respect for my olders but it was very special there's this story as well that I love to sketch so much and in kindergarten I had teacher who who let me do that right I, I, I usually they're yelling at you young man put the pencil down and listen to this history lesson no this is this is actually really reason why why we decided here as well in california our boy goes to a waldorf kindergarten because he can be being creative this is the, the best education you can have yeah. but the academic education starts much later there yes and in my experience I, that was the same thing i just was allowed to sketch all day. The rest of the time I wanted to be carried around because I was just a, a mom kid. But then coming into school, I had a teacher who did not understand that or who for sure thought doing good by being strict, wanting to be strict and wanted to forbid me to sketch. And I realized much later that this was really a critical phase for me. I was getting afraid. I was I was slipping down and and not really catching up with the others in terms of reading. I was mm -hmm. sick a lot. I was home and so on. So my parents learned that as soon the topic school came up at home, I was quiet. I couldn't express it, but I was not healthy, not happy there. Well, obviously, drawing for you became a creative endeavor early on, and it seems to me that it's still really a fundamental building block to your creative process in your current design role. I mean, without drawing, how would you do it? No, it's it's the starting point for everything, I think. You need to understand, you need to articulate. I had a fantastic life-drawing professor in Fordsheim. He always said you need to through drawing understand basically the backside what you don't see so you 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 draw it all around you understand you you immerse yourself in in something it's an important thing it's an important thing it's as well like you're you're exposing a lot of your personality you're it's like a hand writing I'm not, i don't have the most beautiful handwriting but the still the the art of how a line is how what importance you can put into one single line yeah. is yeah. uh what kind of respect, you know, knowledge, experience can go in one single line is astonishing. It's, yes. it's amazing, yeah? And many times, of course, a car can carry that same line and, and carry that same signature through the, you know, arc of a fender or a profile or a, or even a detail that really sort of identifies its creator. This is amazing. I wish our audience could see these renderings. They're absolutely exquisite. Talk about artistic, artistic capabilities. These are gorgeous illustrations, very soft and painterly. Are those done with markers or a computer? How do you render these things? So I was experimenting with, with watercolor, with hand. My sketches are all, first of all, hand sketches. I'm not a good sketcher on the computer, and I think differently on a piece of paper. But the young designers, they sketch on a computer. But it is actually not always good, and I try as well to challenge them from time to time. Yes. Because, it's, you know, Apple Z, Apple Z, you can just, It's just replaceable. It's so that's easy. right. And, that's uh, right. It's the difference between typing on a keyboard and actually being to, being able to write in cursive. If you write it, you feel it in a way that you can never feel it if you click the keys. Absolutely. And to have this as well that you actually you know you could screw it up is as well something special. You know, a sketch, a rendering. That's right. Where you have to exactly know when to stop. There's a beauty as well into that, right? Yes, That's there. a different relationship you have with a sketch. So, for example, on this series of these blue renderings, it meant for me something. How I did them, that was the ghost, right? Out of the shadow. Yeah. That was, uh, they should be powerful. They should be elegant. They should be like nobody else has done them before. I've never seen them before. So this was, this was the meaning for me behind that. But before he left, I was interested to pick his brain about the place of luxury in a world that is increasingly focused on performance. In a lot of ways, the playing field has been leveled. Every car is equal. Every car performs to the max. Every car delivers everything you want. At that point, my question is, what will be the measure of a luxury vehicle? What role does design play in defining a, one car as a real statement of luxury and excellence? Well, I think it plays a very, very important role on, again, on how you get there. What are your authentic thoughts behind it? How, how does the whole team get there and what is the story for it? So what will be the, the authentic experience that you interact with your car, how you feel your car? Again, it's not a shell. 
One example is how something probably I learned at Rolls-Royce was cultivated, let's say, at Rolls-Royce because I was always interested to, to dig a little bit deeper. But what I do with my designers as well now, I send them out not only for days, but for, for weeks and sometimes more than a month to work somewhere else, not in the design studio. They go to, uh, for example, they worked at the Hollywood Hills, stayed there, slept there and got the task for me to try different things, dress differently, go in different restaurants in West Hollywood, go in different libraries or, or galleries and see different people with different eyes and experience something very unique. And so when you experience something very unique to yourself, something very unexchangeable, then you can as well design something very unique and you can tell a story with your product that will inspire people as well. It's not exchangeable then. You basically offer something nobody else offers. Mm -hmm. You take in materials from these experiences, from these contexts, you take in feelings and that is not the, I don't want to say you, you mentioned the Prius, any other car, like it's not an exchangeable average car. There's a certain aura, there's a certain presence, there's a certain then confidence and as well the, the possibility for uniqueness because it's not Googled. It's, it's experienced, right? So I ask our color material designer at the Hollywood Hills, at the first review, the image boards were still full of beautiful pictures from the internet. And I say, now we change that. Now you should at least spend half of your time not at the house or three quarter of your time, but spend it outside. Outside. So make sure the next pictures come from your cell phone, come, not from the internet. Come from your, come from yourself, you know. Yeah. And, and then it is clear, no other design studio in the world will have these same images. Well, you know, we talked about moving forward, and obviously I'd like to ask you what's happening with Karma and some secrets in the future there. I'm not sure you're going to tell me much. But in a nutshell, can you tell us where you're going next? Well, we have an, we have an outstanding... EREF powertrain technology already, right, with the Rivero GT. And yes. I, I can say that I'm really more than impressed. I'm touched by how good it drives. Drives extremely good. At Monterey, where we met, yes. journalists and former race drivers were testing the cars and they, they feedback the engineering team. I can't take this desk credit, but our engineering team got to hear from them that this car is superior to the Stuttgart's, which is pretty damn amazing for the first mm. proper ground-up engineered car for such a small company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I know you say small company, by the way. Let me interrupt and just ask you, how many people are with Karma? We are way under 1,000, which is in the automotive industry or context very small. Yeah, it's very intimate. Yeah. Very intimate. But we have a complete full value chain. We manufacture, we do everything from A to Z, mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing. But what I want to say, the car already, so the existing powertrain already drives the chassis, the way how the car brakes and steers is fantastic. And I can only encourage everybody to try it out. This is the one side of our business. We, we will stay and cultivate basically this serial hybrid. So you always drive electric, but you can as well generate more new electricity. And this is the Rivero you're this talking about. This is the Rivero. About. It's yes. a fantastic driver's car. Yeah. Fantastic driver's car. And I was positively shocked, I have to say. And I'm driving it right now. I'm here with the car right oh, now. Oh, fantastic. The other aspect, so we will continue this powertrain and we will see lots of opportunities to, to use this technology in different concepts. In the same time, we are right now approaching a complete new platform, a BATH platform, which again has... That's a battery electric vehicle. But this is a purely battery-driven yeah. vehicle without an engine, combustion engine. And this offers us different opportunities, new opportunities. It's the same or even more excitement for designers because we have so much opportunities. All that sure. space. All that space, which you can use as as space or as negative space, yeah, that's right? right. You that's can right. use it both ways yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you just have to make it very deliberately. Yes. And of course, with, you know, the economies of scale that I assume obtain with your parent corporation, I mean, that's basically battery central. So you've got all of the technological underpinnings and all of the supply chain that you would potentially need to actually uh, imagine and engineer and build those cars. Yeah. Uh, in the same time, you're always looking for partners. The industry is moving so fast. On one hand, it is about hardware. and the other hand, it is about 
software or an ecosystem and services that you can provide. And sure. there we are here in the, in the situation as well in an area which is very, very positive. Uh, it's very, exciting. It's I mean, very finally exciting. cooperation that never existed before, almost of necessity, but also uh, with a mind for efficiency, profits, and everybody wins. Absolutely. And we are not anymore just designers or car builders. We are not just companies who do B2C as a business to customers directly, yeah. but now as well B2B, business to business. We talk to other companies who offer services and we join forces to offer services combined to customers that could be interested in, in our united forces. Lastly, for this episode, I look back on two conversations I had with the one and only Carol Shelby. Until the move is made the way I want to make it, giving them the credit, I'm not going to make the movie. That was the voice of Carol Shelby, automotive designer, innovator, racer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and owner of about a million other descriptors that could be accurately applied. Today, I'm going to share two previously unheard conversations that I had with Carol Shelby, one from 2002 and the other from 2010. Was the Olds Aurora engine a political decision, or was that a motor that you were... Nah, the, the way in? that thing started was John Rock was a friend of mine. And John Rock was in charge of the Oldsmobile division. I went to John, and we sat down for a year or two. And I said, John, I'd, I'm 70 years old, over 70, but I think that there's a niche out here that's not being handled. And I said, that North Star engine is a hell of an engine. It's the best engine built in America today. You think we might build a sport car? And he and I sat down and put a deal together. To get it going, and I put up some of my money, and he arranged for the Oldsmobile dealers to become involved, and it was coming along just fine, and then this guy Zarella comes on board. He didn't appreciate a cowboy like John Rock, who knew how to motivate people, knew what he wanted to get done, told them where he wanted them to go, and he got out of the way and let them do it. Well, this guy came in with his brand management thing, and the first thing you know, I had people in the thing that didn't know one end of a car from the other. Two or three of them were fairly decent people, but it became a nightmare. In five years now, I've finally gotten the car that I can say I'm really proud of it. It's not the most finessed car in the world, but now the Oldsmobile engine with the supercharger, there's nothing. An old man like me went out and did a 3.7 and a quarter of a mile. I did 128 and a quarter. There's nothing that touches that, not the latest Ferrari, and they build some damn good cars, by the way. There's a lot of good sport cars out there. But the Series 1, I'm happy with it now, but it's taken five years, and we had to do it ourselves. We didn't really get any help from Oldsmobile to speak of. After John Rock left, I've always been very disappointed in that. But, do, do you feel that you finally achieved a car that, uh, that you can put your signature on? It's taken us five now? years, though, uh, and we've had to go out and do it ourselves. And I had to sell 75% of the company and bring a partner in, Venture Industries, to get it done because it just wasn't getting done the other way. So it wasn't like working with Ford back in the 60s. The company's changed. Do you think working with the big threes changed over that, that Not period really. of time? Not really. You always run the problem when you work with those people. You have always have a working relationship with somebody in the company that you are in tune with, and they want to get the same thing done that you do, and they run interference for you and take care of you, like Icoca did with me at Ford. Then Bunky Newton comes in, and actually he hated me because I built the Cobras, and I teased him all the time about the fact that General Motors had had so much to do with chaparrales. I says, uh, why don't you all admit that you're building them and helping Jim Hall to the extent? Well, when he came over to Ford, there came the bosses, there came the, the all the stuff to try to put me out of business. I just laughed because I'd had all of it I wanted anyway. And I went off to Africa for 12 years. I spent nine months a year in Africa, and I'd always wanted to do that anyway. But what happens at those big companies, you have somebody that knows automobiles that you can deal with and knows what your goals are and helps you, and you call up some Monday morning and you ask to talk to him and say, well, oh, he's sales manager in Italy now. He left Saturday to go to Italy. He's a sales manager. Or to do the things that I like to do, you always have to deal with 
kind of renegades inside those companies. And, and a lot of times those people get themselves into political trouble, like Lutz mm-hmm. probably should have been chairman of, of Chrysler. He's a real automobile guy, but he's very vocal about what he thinks, and sometimes that might get you in trouble. I think that he's admitted that's done to him, like my mouse got me in trouble a lot of times, and that's what happened at Ford. When Bunky came in and brought his people in, thank God he only lasted a year or he'd probably ruin the company. He was going against the grain of everything that the people at Ford were trying to accomplish. Those guys come in, and boy, they're just like a German shepherd. Got a piss in the corner so you know they were there. And they try to change the whole philosophy of a company that's been around 50, 70 years. And they don't realize that that company is going to be there with or without them. Very few people make a difference. But there are people that make a difference as you go back in the automobile industry or any industry. But you get too many of those people that it's a short-term thing with them, and they usually, a lot of times, they hurt things more than they help. That's that's what they found out, I guess, uh, at Ford with Bunky. Well, certainly your contributions have made a stellar difference to the history of the automobile post-war. I mean, there are a few names that stand out, and yours is uh, absolutely at the top of the list. Think of yourself, Enzo Ferrari, Colin Chapman. I mean, this is a pretty heady crew, so... Yeah, well, you know, I knew all those people pretty darn well. I spent the whole summer of 55 with Dino Ferrari when I was buying all those cars for Tony Paravan over there and driving in Europe, and I knew Colin very well from the very start. And I was very fortunate to come along in that era and know these people. And, hell, I didn't know at the time. They call it the golden era. Well, boy, it never gets easy. It wasn't easy then. It's not easy now. So you just get up every morning and do the best you can. I don't worry. Anybody that thinks they're—somebody called me a legend the other day. I said, anybody thinks they are isn't. And Mr. Ferrari never thought he was a legend. He was just a hard-headed old guy that knew what he wanted to build, that loved his race cars and didn't want to build street cars. If it hadn't been for Luigi Canetti, he would have never built any, I guess. That's right. Colin didn't want to build street cars, but he was forced into it because you have to have the income. Back then, you couldn't make your living just off race cars. It was different than it is today. Back in the late 60s, you know, before the hammer came down on American performance, you mentioned you were involved in a lot of programs. You see five different racing programs. I know, just as an observer, the Cobra and the Mustang programs were both running concurrently, at least up through, what, 67 or so. Were you more involved in one than the other, or was it just a juggling act? How did it work? How do you keep a handle on all that stuff? Tell you the truth, I didn't. I just had a bunch of wonderful people that did it all. I think that Shelby American in the 60s had the... the, the we had more people that that worked until they fell, <laughs> hundreds of them literally toward the end of it. I moved from Texas to California because this is where the hot rodders were. And we wound up with hot rodders from New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Switzerland, Belgium, England. We had most of the hot rodders in the world that dreamed of doing things like this working for us. And we had the Cobra program, a racing program going. We had the development of the Daytona Coupe going. We had all the production of all those cars. I had four different racing programs going at the time. And by the time we got into the Mustangs, that added two more racing programs. And then Ford came along and says when our GT40 didn't do very well in 65, they turned the thing over to us in California. Boy, Henry Ford said after the fiasco in 65, he called Don Fry and Leo Beebe and I in and says, well, you boys, here's your name tag. And it said Ford wins Le Mans in 66. Well, after we got over about having a heart attack, we walked back down the hall and I think it was Don Fry that said, hey, Mr. Ford didn't say anything about our fiscal responsibilities. So we walked back in and he asked him and Mr. Ford said, you boys would like a job next June, wouldn't you? Of course, he was embarrassed for the simple reason that he had a new wife and he had a wonderful 15, 16-year-old son that was very interested in cars at that age And it was embarrassing. Ford had built us the engines and the head bolts stretched, and all the cars blew up in about four hours. The drivers were disgusted. Everybody was getting disgusted with the program. And Those were the 289s? Yeah. Boy, when Mr. Ford got in us, there'll never be another Henry Ford for the simple reason that just nobody will ever have that clout again. 
He ran the company. We spent the equivalent probably of a billion dollars in today's dollars on the program in 66, and then again in 67, and we won it. That was about, uh, I guess the most amazing uh, Le Mans finish in history, though, really. Well, it's very controversial. We shouldn't have done it because Ken Miles won the race, and uh, he, he honestly led the race by a lap and a half, and we all sat down. I was a part of it. Says, well, we beat the Ferraris. Now let's have the three of them go across the finish line together. Well, the French made up some kind of rule that whoever started the furthest up the line, they had to save face some way. But I'll always feel bad because we lost Ken that year testing the car for 67 and uh, broke in two on him at Riverside. And uh, that would have been the only time in history that a driver won Daytona, 24 hours, Sebring, and Le Mans. He had won the other two. And I've always felt very guilty about that. It's a stupid decision. Not a day goes by that I don't think of Ken Miles and, and, uh, and what he meant to us. Of course, there are a lot of other people involved that, that gave so much. Uh, Phil Remington, Carol Smith. But Miles uh, was an amazing human being. You see, in an effort for Ford to get a photograph of all three cars winning at Le Mans, they asked Ken Miles to slow down. They asked Ken, who had just set another Le Mans lap record, to surrender his enormous lead. And by putting three cars neck and neck, officials at Le Mans determined that the car that started furthest behind the starting line had actually driven the furthest and knocked Ken Miles out of first place, denying him not only the victory, but the possibility of becoming the first man to win Daytona, Sebring, and Le Mans in a single year. The last time I saw Carol Shelby, Aston Martin was hosting a party to show their cars to some clients, and I decided to pop in. I noticed Carol kind of in the corner, in a bit of a side room. They'd made him the guest of honor because of his famous Le Mans victory in 1959, certainly the most notable victory and driver Aston Martin's ever had. If there's a high point in Aston Martin history, it's because Carroll Shelby's name was attached to it. (laughs) James Bond's DB5 was a marketing stunt, but Shelby's win? That was the real deal. It was clear that Carroll Shelby was the high-profile celebrity at the event, but he didn't want to be there, and he didn't know anybody, and he, he seemed very lonely at the moment. When he saw me, someone he knew, his eyes lit up. He said, Robert, it's so good to see you. And we talked for about 10 or 15 minutes about nothing and everything. And that's the last time I saw him. There won't be another like Carol Shelby. Not someone who could so ably innovate into the future, nor someone as willing to share the spotlight when it was deserved. Let's end with just one more question for Carol. Did you ever imagine that these early cars, both the Cobras and Mustangs, would ever achieve this kind of cult status, this kind of value? Nah, nah, I never did. And I'm still amazed today, and I'm lucky that it happened because, you know, life, uh, they say you make your luck. Well, there's a lot of people that work very hard and maybe toss the coin, the luck doesn't turn their way, and I'm lucky that it has in a lot of ways for me. So lucky, and I never forget that every morning when I wake up. I'm I'm a lucky guy. We'll see you next time on Cars That Matter to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by A.J. Mosley and Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.